feeling empowered about your blood sugar. That is what we're talking about on today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 340, and I have the wonderful Dr. Ralph Esposito joining me on the show today uh, to talk about blood sugar and insulin. Now, the reason I wanted to have Ralph on the show is because he's a teacher, and blood sugar's complicated, and he's really good at explaining tricky things in simple ways to help you feel empowered and take action. And he's been a huge advocate for knowing your numbers. And what I love about Ralph is he always finds ways for you to do stuff yourself, as well as what you might want to talk to your doctor or health practitioner about. And so on today's show, we really take a big, wide look at blood sugar, insulin, uh, what you can do yourself, what tests to ask for, how often to test your blood sugar, whether you need to rush out and get a continuous glucose monitor, uh, what the red flags are when you get your information about your blood sugar and insulin levels, and how to achieve stabilizing outcomes uh, and good insulin sensitivity, and actually so much more. We cover a ton. And uh, I've started asking health practitioners who join me on the show what their low-tox line is. And I asked Ralph that question and uh, I salivated as I heard him talk about the way his mama makes gnocchi. So uh, it's just a little way of me starting to help everybody realize that there's no uh, absolute clean living perfection out there. It doesn't exist. Uh, And everybody has a line they draw or a, a part of their life, however small or large they go with the flow on. And it's to really just help us release ourselves from this idea of perfect. We heard Dr. Mignot last week on the show talk about how perfect is the enemy of good enough and good. And I'm a huge believer in that too. And I often think it paralyzes us uh, and stops us from moving forward if we think we have to do it perfectly because we know, of course, we're very unlikely to. So um, for those of you who haven't heard the previous two shows I did with Ralph, I urge you to go back and listen if you are interested in men's health uh, or if you'd like to uh, share this with your man because shows number 91 and 102 were very men's health focused. It's a particular passion of Ralph's. He's trained broadly in Chinese medicine and is a licensed acupuncturist as well as being a naturopathic doctor and a functional medicine practitioner. He holds a position as an adjunct professor uh, at New York University where he lectures on integrative medicine, specializing in hormones, integrative urology, and men's health. As I said before, he has such a wonderful way of explaining things that often feel complex and disempowering online, especially when you have a ton of information flying your way. And I hope you enjoy this simple look at blood sugar uh, and insulin empowerment. Um, We're not specifically talking about diabetes or type 2 diabetes reversal in this show. This is, of course, also not medical advice. But if you want to know your blood sugar and insulin numbers, 
and you want to keep an eye on them and know what to do if things are a little out of whack, either too low, too high, uh, without a clinical diabetes diagnosis, then this is absolutely the show for you. We couldn't do this show weekly without our sponsors, uh, and this uh, week I'd love to remind you that you have all year round an extra 10% off the excellent dehumidifiers and Winix air purifiers from ozclimate.com.au. Your code is LOTOXLIFE, nice and simple, and this code can be redeemed either over the phone or also if you want to just jump online and grab a unit. Now, A lot of people are talking about condensation this time of year in our neck of the woods down here in Australia, especially the cooler climates where there's a bigger temperature variation and uh, a lot of thin old windows that tend to be the major culprits for condensation and having a decent dehumidifier to really reduce that morning condensation that many people get that then ends up turning into little mold spores forming around your windows is a brilliant prevention strategy. Um, So uh, you could use the cool climate uh, dehumidifier, which is especially good if you do live in a colder climate. Doesn't mean it doesn't work in hot climates. It's just that it works in all. Uh, Or you could use one of their other dehumidifiers uh, in the range. If like me, you're in Sydney, I don't need the cool climate dehumidifier, but my friends in regional New South Wales they're the ones that I recommend that one to because the temperature dips much lower and they have more condensation issues and people in older houses. So just a little thing to look at if you're noticing that condensation on your windows, I would urge you to have a prevention strategy uh, by using a dehumidifier in your bedroom in the early hours of the morning uh, or when you get up, you just switch it on And you leave it on for a couple of hours to dry out your room and to um, dry up all that condensation and then open your windows and get some fresh air exchange. We also have for July only, uh, BioFirst. They are back uh, and they are focused on educating on their amazing Manuka Soother and Defense range. Now, I have a ton of uh, information on both of these ranges uh, in the show notes, but uh, the short answer on their website in terms of what it is uh, and why the Manuka Soother range is so special is that it's a powerful blend of medicinal honey and herbs uh, and superfruits. It's formulated by PhD in natural medicine. It's a rich source of everyday health benefits, and there are no synthetic alcohols, added sugar, artificial additives, or fillers. And I don't know about you, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s having to get like cough and throat syrups and sprays from the pharmacy, they were revolting. Uh, And if you get the mainstream ones today, they still are. Uh, And it's actually a super super tasty product, uh, the Manuka Soother and the Defense range. They use UMF 10 plus grade and active premium honey from New Zealand with very, very powerful health benefits. And honey has extensive benefits for multiple systems in the body, uh, also an antioxidant. Um, And then, of course, we know it's incredibly soothing. So that just gives you a little idea of some of the benefits from the Soother range. The Defence range uh, is also packed with benefits. So you would use Defence as a bit of a health insurance policy in the wintertime. And Soother you would use if you're feeling pretty poorly and you need some extra support. Uh, You have adult and kid versions of the range. And as I said, there's no alcohol no fillers, no colors. Now the offer is actually across their whole range. So if you need to stock up 
on something uh, uh, in the buyer first range, then feel free to. You have $10 off when you spend 65 or more across the whole site with the promotional code WINTER. Uh, so bio-first.com.au is their website uh, and you can use that for both the US and Australia. Enjoy that offer. Enjoy today's show, Talking Blood Sugar. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Hello, Ralph. How are you doing? Oh, hello. So excited to be here. I know. I was trying to think of our last show and I think it was about three or four years ago. Um, which is crazy to me because it feels like we talk all the time and then that's socials, right? So uh, it's awesome to have you back on the show. We want to talk about blood sugar today and I want to talk about it in the context of giving people a real understanding of what we're looking for uh, in testing, in like issues creeping up uh, because there's just so much that can be done before it's panic stations and acute diagnoses and uh, and it's really just something to check in with. So I'm going to start by asking you, checking in on blood sugar, like what age should we be starting to do it? What, How often should we do it? And what kind of markers should we be asking for? Absolutely. So are we, I think the best follow-up question to you is like, <laughs> I'm already interviewing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, are, we, are we talking about people who are uh do it yourself at home or because we can go both routes right because there's ways that you can support yourself and there's also ways to i usually teach uh people how to have this conversation with their doctor as well so um you tell me which one do we want to start with first and then we can jump into it great question so let's talk about what we can do at home and this is great because we've seen so many doctors on instagram talking about blood, you know, continuous glucose monitors and and that kind of thing lately. And people think, do I need to do that? Uh, You know, if I'm healthy and otherwise feeling good, is that something I need to do? Um, So step us through the DIY first, and then we'll talk going to the doctors. Sure. So the one thing that I always think to myself before we get into all these fancy gadgets and tools and shenanigans, right, is actually listening to the body and identifying what symptoms are aligned with low blood sugar or high blood sugar. Um, You can't really isolate them or have these symptoms be very specific to low blood sugar. But if you are cranky often or fasting often and not eating, and then you start feeling unwell or you start feeling lightheaded or you start feeling tired. um, But most of the time when you have low blood sugar, you're going to have these mood fluctuations. So that's the one people pay attention to is, yes, you could do all these things at home to identify if your blood sugar is low or not. But number one would be, how do you feel when you do a 12-hour, 16-hour, 18-hour time-restricted feeding fast? Now, I know uh, with women and with men, uh, it varies. So women, whether where they are in their cycle might impact the way that how sensitive they are to blood sugar fluctuations or not with, with men, it's a little bit more steady. So the one thing I would ask people is when you're on a 16 hour or 18 hour, or maybe 12 hour time restricted fast, how do you feel? Do you have any fluctuations in symptoms in terms of uh, irritability, uh, low mood, low energy, um, crankiness, as I would call it, uh, or low motivation, that's the first sign that blood sugar regulation is poor. Uh, 
Then I go into, well, what are a few things that you can do at home to assess your blood sugar? So old school finger prick testing. Now it's not fun. You don't want to do that multiple different times a day. Cause obviously you only have so many fingers that you can prick, but that's actually a very good indication of what your actual blood sugar uh, levels are. And it's, it's more accurate than a CGM, but it's only, a, yeah, it's a different assay that they're using in there. And because uh, the, your blood sugar that you would do with a finger prick, whether it's a one touch or any other uh, device, they it's using your whole blood with a CGM. And it's assessing the blood sugar in the interstitial fluid. So it's not really, it is, it's technically assessing the fluids um, underneath your skin, but it's not testing whole red blood cell or whole blood measurements. So the, so your, the finger prick is going to be more accurate. And in fact, that's how we calibrate continuous glucose monitors is we look at the glucose monitor and say, okay, the glucose monitor is saying, the CGM is saying, I have a blood sugar 120. I did a finger prick and it says it's, you know, 160 or it says it's, you know, 80. You, you calibrate to the finger prick. So the finger could actually be quite helpful, but there's certain times that you would want to do it. So if you're going to do this at home, you never do it before me. I'm sorry. You never do it after a meal. So you always do it uh, either right before a meal. You never want to do it around exercise because exercise will increase your blood sugar or lower your blood sugar, depending on the type. Um, so the ideal moments to do it would be, I, I like uh, two hours after waking, but before your first meal. And if obviously you have to meet those criteria of exercise, et cetera, or right before bed, assuming you didn't just eat before bed, which you should. should have. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, Many people ask me why not right in the morning, and that's because of the cortisol response that happens in the morning, and your blood sugar will be elevated regardless. Mm -hmm. That is great advice. So let the cortisol settle. Um, what if you know you have low cortisol in the morning and you're working on that issue? Like, does that mean you can then test it? It doesn't really matter. Uh, you look. You sh you certainly could test it regardless. But if you test it within the first 90 to 120 minutes of waking up um, and it is elevated, it doesn't really tell you much because that is a cortisol awakening response. If you test your blood sugar 30 minutes after waking up and it's at 60 or, or 70, where it typically should be around 80 to, to 90, then that might mean hypocortisolemia because your blood, your, your cortisol levels are low. But it's usually the opposite effect that I have my patients monitor because um, it's just a little bit more telling. There's other reasons why somebody can have low blood sugar. Number one could be fasting, but your liver should do a, a good enough job to keep your blood sugar steady, assuming everything else with your adrenals is working appropriately. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that's actually a really great investigation point for a whole host of issues. If if it's low, especially there. Yes. I have a ton of fun uh, doing this on myself and even with patients who are trying to investigate how does their body respond to certain foods, how does their body respond to stress. Um, there's so many other variables that impact this, which is why I do think CGMs could be helpful. But if you don't, um, you also have to consider the other variables that might impact blood sugar. So sleep, if you have poor sleep, that's going to cause elevated blood sugars in the morning. Um, if you are eating before bed, that could impact blood sugar the following day, because usually you want to give your body 10 to 12 hours for that fast. So if you go to bed at midnight and you ate 
at 11.30 at night and you're waking up at 6 a.m. and checking your blood sugar, that's not really a fast, right? Many people think it is, but it's not. So uh, it's it's very intriguing to find out this information. Um, but if all else is equal, if you're doing the proper approach uh, and you check your blood sugar right up in the morning and it is very high or very low. So if it is very high, I would say above 140, or if it's very low below 65 or 60, then that indicates what your adrenal hormones are doing. Uh, not just cortisol though, right? Because catecholamines, uh, epinephrine, adrenaline, these are things that are released in the morning as well. And they should increase your, your blood sugar slightly. And if they're not, then there might be another indication that not just the outside of the adrenal gland, but also the core of the adrenal gland might be dysfunctional, which is actually not even the adrenal gland at all, could be BHPA access as a whole. Mm-hmm. Huge. And and so um, the continuous glucose monitor is okay, but not your favorite. If you can do the pinpricks, that's your, that's your um, gold standard for the home job. I like the CGM in terms of the amount of data that you get, but the finger prick is more accurate. There's trade-off. What are we trying to assess? Are we trying to assess our response to food? Then a CGM is going to be pretty good because you can essentially measure three meals a day, two meals a day for 10 days, right? Rather than doing a finger prick on yourself three times a day after every meal. There's there's certain tricks that the CGM provides benefit. It really depends on what we're trying to do. So one one of my favorite tools to do with people is an at-home oral glucose tolerance test. Now, not gold standard, like we would do in a doctor's office with a blood draw, because again, those are more accurate with a different assay that measures blood sugar in the serum or in the blood. Uh, it also allows me to measure insulin, which is a lot more effective, and you can't do that at home yet. However, I do think that if people are at home and they want to do a um, a makeshift oral glucose tolerance test, which is, uh, for your listeners, I'll kind of break it down. Essentially, pregnant women or anybody who was pregnant knows this test. They probably have done it to assess for uh, gestational diabetes. But um, with when you test for gestational diabetes, they'll do they'll give you essentially like a bottle of glucose, literally like 25 grams of sugar water, the most disgusting thing in the world. It's gross. Yeah. You would do that. And then they would measure your blood sugar an hour and two hours later. If your sugar is still elevated two hours later, then you have gestational diabetes. Now that's fine, but one in two hours is not enough. I want to see what the trend is. And what I would have people do is when you're home, take so the only time. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can see you feel really uncomfortable recommending I, this. <laughs> you'll, you'll never hear me recommend somebody consume 75 grams of sugar in a sitting. But if you want to do this, this is what we do. So you take 75 grams of sugar. So think about a teaspoon of sugar is about five grams. So the calculation to get to 75 grams of blood of sugar. Now this is different than the glucola because glucola is a pure glucose. So sugar is sucrose and glucose. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a mix, but if you can get pure glucose, like dextrose, you can do that as well, but not everybody carries that around. Right. So I would say take 75 grams of table sugar, mix it 
in about eight to 10 ounces of water and that in a bolus uh, within, you know, an hour, two hours of waking up and then do the finger prick of your blood sugar every 30, 60 or every 30 minutes up until two hours. So you do it 30, 60, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, and then record your blood sugar and see where it goes. So it should increase within the first 30 to 60 minutes. And then it by 90 and 120, it should by 120, you should be at uh, 110 or less milligrams per liter. Um, depending on where you are, you might use different units for blood sugar. So there's a yeah, we do in Australia. I was going to ask you about that. Why can't we just have a global standard? So because it's the same with cholesterol. Americans like to do things their way. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, it's just a it's just the the way that I was trained. So I converted yet, but I, I should. Um so you get that 30, 60, 90, 120, and you want you want it to be at 120 uh or 110 milligrams of deciliter or less by that 120. Because really it should take your body 90 minutes to really metabolize that sugar and get it down, assuming you have proper muscle mass and you're not insulin resistant. Now if you are elevated by that 90 and 120 mark, that indicates insulin resistance, might even be indicative of diabetes, depending on what your number is. And that's really your your at-home makeshift um, oral glucose tolerance test. And I do that. I do that with patients who don't really feel like going to a lab and sitting there for two hours. Uh, the other thing that I do is actually doing that with food. So you could do it with 90, uh, 75 milligrams of, of sucrose or glucose, and then try it with 75 grams of rice. So try it with 75 grams or 75 grams of carbohydrates from rice. So you really get an indication of how insulin sensitive am I? Is it really just the sugar? Because what, what will happen is that like for myself, I never have that much sugar. I mean, so there's a fact that happens where the body's like, Never saw this before. Don't know what to do with it. We're just going to overreact. And mm. that happened. Yeah. So Yeah, because really I was going to say, like, is it accurate if it's something we never do? Like, why would we put our bodies through that full stop? Because your body should be able to handle it. If you have proper muscle mass and if you have proper um, insulin sensitivity. But not everybody does. And this is a great test because it precedes or um, is a early indicator of insulin resistance way before a single uh, stop point uh, blood sugar monitor or blood sugar test. So your 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 oral glucose tolerance oral glucose tolerance test will um, could potentially predate or precede a diabetes diagnosis just by blood sugar by five to ten years. Um, maybe even 15 years in some individuals. Wow. So, and so should we be doing this like every couple of years once we hit a certain age to just check in? Um, my patients do it once a year. Yeah. So, and it's, you know, do I do it once a year? No, because I, I'm pretty confident that I'm not. And I get blood work done pretty consistently. So I, I have an idea where my fasting insulin levels are. But for the average individual, um, assuming obviously, you know, this is something that they should make sure is safe for them because I don't know who's diabetic or not. And medications have, can have be impacted by this. Um, 
but certainly something that can be done at home, pretty cheap, and gives you a good indication of where you are on the insulin resistance spectrum. Mm-hmm. And and then in terms of going to the doctor's office, what is the difference uh, so that people understand it f- between getting a fasting a blood sugar and a fasting insulin? Like why would we want both? So similar to fasting blood sugar uh, or what I just said around the oral glucotonge test, a the, the gold standard for diabetes is the, the OGTT, oral glucotonge. That is the gold standard. Runner-up is fasting insulin. Now, it's not used to diagnose diabetes, but it's very good to screen for, for pre-diabetes or pre-insulin resistance. And the reason why is um, your body, if it is... Uh, the base, the better way to kind of explain this is what is the normal physiology of blood sugar regulation? So each, we eat a food, it's converted to, a, uh, or the carbohydrate, if it has carbohydrates, it's broken down. That is broken down into the digestive tract or in the mouth or by the microbiome into sugar. That sugar is absorbed, sent to the bloodstream or really sent to the liver. Then the liver sends it throughout to the bloodstream it will meet the pancreas. The pancreas will notice the blood sugar elevation. It will secrete insulin. And then it will, that insulin travels throughout the body. That insulin binds to cells or different parts of the body and says, pull this sugar in because we know that high blood sugar uh, or elevated levels of blood sugar in that are just strolling around in our blood can be problematic. Um, I can go into a lot of the physiology, but essentially think of it like little uh, particles of sandpaper that really should not be there. And that's why a lot of people with diabetes get vascular disease or, uh, cataract, I'm sorry, not cataracts. Um, uh, um, um, geez, um, uh, retinal neuropathies, et cetera, because of the blood sugar elevations. So now think about it. If you have a high level of blood sugar, your body should release more insulin which would then bring that blood sugar down. So it's kind of masking or hiding it. But if you can measure the insulin, now you're measuring the thing that's lowering the blood sugar. So many instances, we have cases of what we call hyper uh, insulinemia with euglycemia or normal glycemia, which essentially means high levels of insulin, but normal blood sugar. So you can measure somebody's insulin that can be high and their blood sugar could be normal. So you can miss the, the high blood sugar because the body's creating more insulin to pull that blood sugar in, which it really shouldn't. So uh, the fasting insulin will, will be an early indicator of insulin resistance way before blood sugar elevations are higher. Yeah. And yet typically we do just the blood sugar, like in a normal um, GP blood work workup. So we need to be requesting both. And once we're adults, we need to do it once a year. Would that be good advice? I run fasting insulin on my patients every single blood test. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So if you've got other issues going on and you're going in regularly, yeah. you whack it in there as as a part of what you're checking out. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Got it. And uh, And so any other markers that you test for, to complete a blood sugar insulin picture when you're investigating that part of things? It's not much, but enough to really get a 
picture. So there's, you know, the oral glucose tolerance test. So fasting blood sugar, fasting insulin. Um, should we do a or OGTT? We would also do that with insulin. So what is insulin at 30, 60, 90, 120 minutes? Really an indication of how, whether, you know, you can have normal blood sugar, but high insulin at 120 minutes, not a good sign. There's a few other tests like a glycomark or a hemoglobin A1C. Um, I don't use those often. I mean, I run an A1C on all of my patients, but it's really designed for diabetics, truthfully. Uh, so unless you're diabetic, the A1C cutoff points of 5.7 or 6.5%. Uh, again, unless you're really far along the diabetes process or the insulin resistance process, it's not very helpful. It's good for monitoring reductions. So in other words, a A1C of 5.2 is no better than an A1C of 5.4, or an A1C of 4.8 is no better than a A1C of 5.2. These are natural variations that occur depending on the life cycle of the red blood cell and et cetera. Uh, so those are the few different tests that I would look at for blood sugar regulation, and then if you're really bad, you're going to find it in the urine, but that'll, that's kind of way down the line. Okay. Um, and, and Ralph, we, we talk a lot about elevated blood sugar, but what are the issues with low blood sugar? Yeah. So it's much less common or because are much, much less likely to screen for it and kind of just dismiss it. But when we have low levels of blood sugar, uh, there could be multiple different variables. Obviously, there could be an actual issue with the way that the pancreas is working with certain um, proteins or hormones that are involved in managing blood sugar, glucagon, insulin, uh, GLP-1. Uh, there's multiple different hormones that are involved in this process. When I see somebody with low blood sugar, I think of a few things. Uh Number one, are they overworking themselves, not eating enough, right? Because although I do tell people you kind of have to earn your carbohydrates if you're if you're really going to be eating a lot of them, but there is a certain amount that should be tolerable for most people. And that really just depends on the individual. The first thing that I go to when somebody's blood sugar is low, I also look at their blood pressure. And those that go hand in hand. If somebody's blood sugar is low, this is chronic. Somebody's blood sugar is low and their blood pressure is low. Uh, and when I say low, I'm talking, you know, less than a hundred, usually, you know, 105 is pretty okay, depending on how active the person is. But if somebody's, like a, you know, a regularly active person doesn't run 5Ks, et cetera, and their blood sugar is low and their blood pressure is low, that tells me that there's an adrenal issue going on. And the typically I'd run to the HPA axis and try to see what is uh, contributing to this because cortisol and your HPA axis are responsible for blood sugar regulation and also blood pressure, which people don't realize. So hypocortisolemia can present as hypotension or low blood pressure and low blood sugar, which makes people feel double anxious or double irritable because they're not getting enough circulation and also their body's feeling deprived of sugar. Oh, so that that is often an indication of low blood sugar. Yeah, that and so that's like the extreme of tired but wired, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, tired and fatigued and lethargic. 
but anxious at the same time and kind of revved in one weird little way. Yeah. Exactly right. Not somebody a good pairing. Exactly. Who's kind of craving that and their body is feeling it. And truthfully, the biggest issue is in the brain because the brain is our main, the main source of fuel for the brain is sugar. Now, unless you're in ketosis and have trained your body to be ketosis, it'll be quite challenging for your body to go from a blood sugar, a normal blood sugar uh, level to dropping in blood sugar. Now it needs to rev itself back up and your brain's bringing in a lot of this blood sugar for its own use because it needs it. Um, the, the heart and other organs, they can run on fat pretty easily. The brain, it's not so efficient at doing that. And it takes a little bit of time unless you've trained it to get into ketosis. Mm-hmm. And in your view, is that a good thing for people to do? To or get is into it ke- situation dependent? Uh, to, to, to get, get into, into ketosis. Yeah. To, uh, so there's two, there's nutritional ketosis and then there's ketosis. So one is actually a normal response to a nutritional intervention. And the other is a, a disease state or a, a, a pathology state. So uh, I usually tell people if you're trying to get into ketosis, then it's totally fine, but you have to be prepared for it. And you have to know what's going to happen with that. Uh, there are other people who are unintentionally trying to get into ketosis, whether there could be blood sugar regulation issues that are going on, or they just, you know, are, are fasting and didn't prepare their body for that. So I think there's a bad thing with getting into ketosis, uh, nutritional ketosis. It really just depends on the individual because it is a, it is, it is a stressor on the body. Many people don't realize that dietary restriction, caloric restriction, um, fasting, all of these things are stress on the body. Now we need to be uh, resistant and to be able to tolerate these things, but doing them for people who are, you know, um, adding this additional stressor stressor on top of the 12 other stressors in their day. Yeah. The best thing. Yeah. So yeah, especially if you've got the HPA axis thing going on with the low blood sugar, low blood pressure. Yeah. Now I'm going to do a fast. Great idea. Yeah. No. <laughs> exactly. And, and mm. many people will say, well, our ancestors fasted all the time, but they weren't running around all day while also fasting every single day, right? They found their meal. And when they were in a caloric deficit, they weren't, they were trying to conserve energy. We're not conserving energy when we're in this caloric deficit. We're adding more stressors onto our body, which are more energy demanding, not just from, you know, running around or chasing things, but think of what your mitochondria need to do to kind of keep up, whether it's a neurological uh, or a mental or a physiological uh, energy requirement, it's going to be taxing regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, I think, you know, we have to think of ourselves as animals if you're going to undertake something like fasting. And, you know, if you're going to fast, be a sloth. (laughs) Just chill because it's actually your body is trying to, the whole point of fasting is to get your body's cells to sort themselves out, to to get rid of the junk and do all the thing. And you can't do that if you try and put in a 12-hour day at work and and, uh, then go play tennis. It's just not going to, it's not going to be good. Yeah. And if there are many of my patients who will tell me I'm going to fast and I have to exercise. Um, I, you know, I, I, for the first, um, medically monitored fast, I tell them, look, we're going to do this for three days. You are not going to exercise for these three days. You can go for a walk. We do a few, but you're not, you know, going to your CrossFit class. 
Now, once they're more experienced, I tell them, if you want to do it totally okay, it has to be in the morning because your cortisol level should be elevated in the morning. Your blood sugar levels should be elevated slightly in the morning to, to, to tolerate some of this. But if you do it in 4 or 5 p.m. when your, your cortisol levels should be getting closer to that evening uh, low cortisol level, and now you're trying to come back up, you're going to tax your body and tax your uh, HPA access, and that's going to create more issues. Yeah, big time. And and so can I ask you there on that front, because it makes me think of something that I do that I know is probably not great for me, is I play tennis comp, but it's between 8 and 10 p.m. at night. Uh, and it's my favorite comp and uh, really good people, great level. Uh, but I cannot get to sleep till like one. It's awful. And I can feel the inflammation, the histamine. It's not great, Ralph. Um, can I hack that or or do I have to actually just think about finding a good morning comp? Is that going to be really the best thing that I should do for myself? So the way that I look at it is what benefits are you getting from that evening exercise that um, and what what negative effects is outdoing or essentially negating some of those benefits? And things that you mentioned already, number one, you're exercising. Great. Love it. So exercising better than not. Number two, you mentioned that it's with good people and community is an incredible, incredibly uh, underappreciated aspect of health that we don't pay attention to. So those two things alone tell me that you probably should still do it. Now, could we hack it? Actually, yes. There's a few ways that we can, um, I, I don't really like the word hack, a few ways that we <laughs> yeah, can sorry. Uh, take advantage of the body physiology during that. few things. Number one, I would have a meal after. Now, I know I tell don't eat late at night, and that's totally okay. But if you have a meal that is uh, easily digested, um, what we find is that when people exercise and they fast, that their cortisol levels come down a little bit slower. So one thing I would recommend is let's just say you finish at 10 PM, have a, you know, a simple protein shake, whether it's a pea protein or plant-based or whey protein, whatever it is. And then maybe a few berries or half a banana or half an apple. That should be enough to kind of refuel your body and also allow it to relax and make it not feel like it's in this chronic stressful state. Because uh, many people think that the, the there's the rest and digest, like right parasympathetic, and then there's the fight or flight, which is the sympathetic approach. Many people think it's on and off. If you're parasympathetic, you're not sympathetic. If you're sympathetic, you're not parasympathetic. And that can't be farther from the truth. They're actually just kind of a, a seesaw. Spectrum, um, and- yeah. One is on more than the other, but they're always active. If that were the case, we would have a high heart rate and never be able to manage it. And we have, or we would have a low heart rate and never be able to get it to normal. So we can manage that, that autonomic response through food. I would also spend some time just relaxing after your comp or just relaxing. You know, I like walking on the grass. I don't know if there's any grass around. That'd be really grounding. Some grounding. Great idea. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Um, we were speaking before, could you do some acupuncture? Mm. I don't know if acupuncture is available at 11 o'clock at night. But <laughs> See, this yeah. comes back to me having to study TCM so that I could do it to myself. There you go. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then there are some herbs that might be helpful. So mm. I like phosphatidylserine. 
as an immediate uh, actor in reducing cortisol levels. I really like Relora, um, um, uh, uh, Ashwagandha is another one. Uh, Holy Basil is really good. I like these relaxing adaptogens. That that would probably be the best approach that I would go go after. Yeah, because a lot of uh, I've actually spoken to quite a few friends, middle aged women, so we're dealing with the perimenopause situation, uh, who have found you know your kids are a bit older, so you're getting back into your hobbies. You've got a bit more time to do that kind of stuff, and um, and you know two of them are playing netball, another couple of people, and the women at tennis, um. Uh, all say, oh, my gosh, I just can't get to sleep at night after comp. Or, um, uh, so I'm going to share those hacks. I was already drinking Tulsi tea, having a little bit of chicken and sweet potato. So it sounds like I'm on the right track, but I probably need to switch the tea out for an actual supplement to get a really good dose um, and then bring a couple of other little trials in. Thanks. Yeah, teas mm. are great as adjunct or um, they're not even, we can't call them supplements, but they're they're just food. Right? Mm, yeah. You want to get the real benefits, the therapeutic effects from some of these adaptogens. It should be in a concentrated form or an extract form. Yeah. I remember my naturopath, Christine, saying to me when I was 28, I was like, but I've got dandelion tea. She's like, you want to drink 20 cups? I'm like, no, <laughs> take the <Okay>. pill. <laughs> Funny yeah. story. I used um my father and my mother, they would essentially go, you, you think I live in New York and we don't have woods and forests, but we have a lot of woods and Of course forest. you do. They're so close around the big city as well. Yeah. I don't yeah, think so, people realize. Oh yeah. I live outside of Manhattan and you can walk around and you can find dandelion just growing mm. in like your yard. And my father would pick it and he would, my mom would cook it and saute it. And I ate so much that the bitterness just sat on my tongue for hours and i was like there's no way anybody is taking this as a food you have to get in a supplement mm. yeah and and yeah i mean butter can can only get you so far in that scenario <laughs> so we've drifted off blood sugar a little bit but given the relationship to cortisol and 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 stress and and rebalancing it just felt like kind of a good tangent because i've been actually asked about that quite a bit so i want to jump into that Goldilocks uh, moment that we want to try and kind of keep bringing the body back to balance, keep bringing the blood sugar back into range. And the too low, too high, uh, obviously neither are ideal. And low, we've kind of spoken about needing a wider picture of investigation. So thank you for that. But when it's too high, uh, or um, not ideal, and it's not coming back into balance quickly enough as you would expect the body to be able to cope with, what are we working to do first? Are there other investigations we want to do for the too high as well, or are we going to go straight into starting to um, put some building blocks in place to bring it back in line? No, I don't think we need to investigate further once you have enough information, then it's enough information to take action. Uh, and the way that I get frustrated often with the conventional approach is we're not going to treat this until it's pre-diabetes. In, in my book, pre-diabetes is still way too far along. So 
um, once I see a blood sugar, a fasting blood sugar above a hundred, I mean, I'm not talking 101, I'm thinking 110, 120, 10 to 15% above a hundred, because there is some standard deviation of, of variability that might occur. I'm already acting and saying, yep, this is something that we need to get after. I also look at people's triglycerides levels because triglycerides are, unless you have hypertriglyceridemia, just like a, um, a hereditary high triglyceride level, um, the body outside of that cannot make triglycerides unless the body's consuming carbohydrates. So triglycerides are fat in our blood, but they're actually made from dietary carbohydrate intake, unless you have a hereditary familial condition. So I love those two things. And if those two things match, then I'm I'm not waiting for you to get the diabetes. So the things that we have to go after is, okay, so if blood sugar is elevated, why is it elevated and how do we address it? And we have to take a, a systems biology approach and we look at it and say, okay, is the liver making too much blood sugar? Uh, are our adrenal glands creating too much cortisol, which are inhibiting our body to clear blood sugar? Are we eating or taking in too much blood sugar or too much carbohydrates or increasing the blood sugar? Is our muscle not using it or do we not have enough muscle to use this blood sugar? You you know, one thing that I've, I've learned from one of my uh, mentors and, and very good friends, Peter, uh, Peter Atia, is taking this engineering type of approach. Find out what the problem is and then take a few steps back and figure out what's wrong. And I've I've taken this approach with a lot of the issues that we see in the human body because you kind of can break it down to little bits and pieces. So you look at all, what are the things that could possibly cause it and how do we reverse those things? And the ways that we try to reverse them is, okay, so do we need to increase muscle mass? Do we need to increase fuel utilization? So we need to get you moving more. Do we need to deplete the liver of some of its glycogen stores so that it can get rid of its glycogen, which is a, essentially a storage form of sugar or starch? Um, do we need to manage how much blood sugar is coming in? And is there a uh, other hormonal aspect that we need to address? Hypothyroidism, um, high so low high, low thyroid, uh, low cortisol, high cortisol levels. All these things need to be considered. And you, you kind of pinpoint and say, okay, well, I have three yes and two no. I'm going to go after those three that are yes, whatever one it is. And then we attack it. It's usually low muscle mass. It's usually the liver is uh, essentially congested with glycogen and not able to utilize it, which leads to insulin resistance. Um, and then people are just not moving enough, literally just not utilize that blood sugar. So it's just not being used. And so, you know, essentially a 15 minute walk after a meal can really make a difference. Yeah. And, and when you say muscle, like, what are we aiming for? Are we aiming for a particular, um, like percentage? If we look at a scan, are we looking, how can we start to, I mean, is it just about feeling strong and knowing that you're using them? Cause I, I, I don't love over gadgetizing. I mean, you know, I've been through a chronic illness, so, you know, I've got my Ura ring, I do my red light. There are a few things that I've brought in that have really been very helpful for that. But for otherwise, like regular peeps, you don't want to feel like you have to buy thousands of dollars worth of stuff to be healthy. I always caution against that. It's also not very sustainable to fill our lives with tons of stuff if we don't need it. 
Um, is it actually just about doing a resistance workout a few times a week? Uh, is that enough for good blood sugar for most people? Depends on where you're starting. Depends on how old you Depends on your gender. Uh, depends on your genetics. You know, I people, and they just put on muscle mass pretty easily. And there are other people who have a difficult time putting on muscle mass. So um, there's there's people who we, I essentially look at them again, going to throw another one of my very good friends, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And I've learned this from her on being under muscled. So essentially people, uh, and by the way, I'm not name dropping. I'm just giving people credit where credit is due. Exactly. And I love that Ralph, because often you just see people parrot other people's stuff that, you know, the other person said it way before, and then they don't get credited. And uh, I'm a huge fan of that. So thank you. I love Gabrielle Lyon. I think she's a, a legend. Oh, she's a rock star. Yeah. Um, so the way that I look at it is that people are either they're under muscled and you can do tests. Certainly you could do DEXA scans. There's ways that we can assess for that. But um, a great way to, to assess for that just from home is, are you strength training? You should be training at minimum three times a week. And it doesn't mean you go to the gym three times a week or it doesn't mean you do an exercise three times a week. It means that that muscle needs to be under tension three times a week for a sufficient amount of time to stimulate it to move or, or stimulate it to grow. And that the can body- be a resistance workout for free on YouTube. It does not need to include literally any kind of tool or gym equipment piece. It's push-ups, squats, uh, you know, your own body resistance is enough, right? I mean, that's what it was in the wild. Uh, absolutely. I would say um, body weight exercises are very safe and they can be very effective. You know, I, I, I'm a, I think I'm a fairly strong guy, but you ask me to do hundred pushups. That's not easy, right? Just because you can bench press, you know, your body weight a hundred times or 10 times doesn't mean that you can do a pushup because it's a very different type of exercise. So yeah, you can do absolutely do all of these things at home. There are a few things that might be helpful if you want to have like a pull-up bar to be able to lift yourself up. You're not trying to, I mean, you guys can go outside and find the branch, but I don't know. <laughs> what you can do. Um, yeah. Resistant bands are absolutely helpful, but you'd be surprised at how hard you can make resistant exercises just with your body weight. So some people might say, well, squatting is easy for me. Well, try a single-legged squat with uh, leaning forward and trying to balance yourself. A lot of these things can be done at home, but you need to stimulate the muscle. You need to, it's it's essentially physiology. The body will not change unless you stimulate it to change. You will not become pre-diabetic or diabetic if you do not expose the body to the things that cause it to be diabetic, because otherwise the body wants to heal and the body wants to maintain this level of equilibrium and homeostasis. But it's essentially us forcing it out of that homeostasis, which prevents us from getting there. So, um, but it's also the opposite. We want to push it towards a new homeostasis. And that's where um, uh, strength training comes into play. So I think three times a week is is certainly a good start. And then the rest should be uh, moderate paced walking where you get your heart rate closer to 70, uh, 60 to 75% of your maximum heart rate. So take your age, you multiply, you subtract uh, your, sorry, you take 220, you subtract your age, you set 5% of that, try to get your heart rate around that, that range. Now, if you don't like gadgets enough so that you feel slightly out of breath 
but enough for you to be able to have a conversation. So mm -hmm. like Dr. This. Daniel Amen says, uh, I like this one. Just walk like you're running late for a meeting. Yeah, exactly. right. <laughs> it's like a great way to kind of make it make sense. Mm. Oh, we know, about, we know a lot about that in New York. I mean, obviously, <laughs> Right. You guys anyway. are my people because you walk the way I walk. I love it. Right. <laughs> That's it's as easy as that. It's just trying to walk as if you're walking with a friend. You're having a conversation, but you know that you're each working or panting in a way that you can ho hold a conversation, but also be able to communicate uh, or have that um, level of exercise. And that's the best for like if you do nothing else, those two things are going to get you in a better state of health. Yeah. Fantastic. And the after meal walk is key, especially if you've had something with a healthy level of carbs in there by healthy, I mean like quite a bit, uh, not necessarily healthy, um, pertaining to this conversation, especially, but also, you know, if you had dessert after a meal at a restaurant and, you know, like just park a bit further away and, and make sure it's a nice big walk to the car. Um, those kinds of things really do make a difference. I know they do for me. And and so then on the subject of food, you mentioned way earlier you have to earn your carbs. Uh, I think that's a great way to think about it. Um, you know, our hunter-gatherer uh, ancestors were eating well far less sugary um, fruits before hybrid hybridization happened, but they were eating a lot of plant foods. There were a lot of plant sugars in the diet, but they were constantly on the move. Uh, and then we are sitting at a desk for eight hours thinking we can still have a ton of berries, but like we've added the Pringles, the milkshakes, the Kit Kats and all that jazz. Uh, and that is literally living in a way that our biology doesn't understand. It's like, what are you doing to me? And that is... That is the conversation we've got to start tuning into. That's the voice we've got to start listening to. I absolutely agree with you. The way that I kind of tell my patients is we're living in a way that is discordant with evolutionary biology. We we have not, we're moving in a direction that is not aligned with what our genetics really think we should be doing. Um, and again, it's just as easy as just moving. Whenever I, I talk to people about the foundations of health or the, the pillars of health, it's nutrition or quality nutrients. It's uh, movement, not even exercise, just, just move sunshine, which I kind of throw getting into nature as part of that community. So being a part of a community, being a part of, of other people, uh, or a larger group of people and mental health. Sorry. And, and sleep, obviously things if you could do those things. You are more concordant or more aligned with the way human beings are designed to work. And science is kind of starting to learn that. I mean, trying to realize that there is such thing as preventative lifestyle medicine. It's not just, you know, you don't solve things by just, you know, pills and, and, um, and shots. No, you don't. And uh, pardon my French, but like waiting for the shit to hit the fan uh, to, before you do something is not healthcare. It's just not. That's right. Uh, and you don't have to pardon your French. I'm from New York. If you can <laughs> imagine the type of vulgarity that I walk around. Uh, I so. miss it. I miss it. I haven't been for years, but, um, but yes, I do. I do know the colorful language that New Yorkers <laughs> tend to use. 
Um, I want to ask you about your favorite TCM interventions. I know you are just such a huge fan, um, obviously trained in TCM as well as naturopathy uh, and conventional medicine. Like you've got, you've got the whole thing going on. So um, what are your, like, can we use acupuncture for blood sugar? We can, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So mm. in TCM, in Chinese medicine, uh, wasting syndrome or wasting disease is the way traditional Chinese medicine has translated diabetes. The way that I look, the way I explain it to some of my students is um, Chinese medicine or TCM just identified patterns created and connected multiple different symptoms or patterns. In, t- in TCM, it's a pattern type of uh, diagnosis. And then said, okay, if you have these three patterns, then you have X syndrome. So wasting syndrome is diabetes in Chinese medicine. And it's when someone eats a lot, pees a lot, and drinks a lot. So when somebody's doing those three things, it's wasting syndrome. Well, in in Western medicine, it's polyphagia, polydipsia, and uh, polyuria, right? So these it's the same thing. It's just they called it two different things. In Chinese medicine, they they treat wasting syndrome with uh, uh, herbal remedies, with Chinese herbs, with uh, qigong, tai chi, with Chinese medical massage or tui na, uh, and then acupuncture. I'm telling you, I have never seen somebody's, there's two things that I've never seen work as quickly as acupuncture. Um, Getting somebody's HRV up, getting their resting heart rate down, and getting their blood sugar down if they're in a hyperglycemic state with acupuncture. It's just auto autopilot. It's it's incredible what happens when you regulate the way that these meridians and that these uh, systems are working in the body. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And to know now that you have that Korean group of researchers who have found the subvascular system that proves meridians uh, is kind of exciting to finally say, see, 6,000 years we've known this, and now yeah. you finally believe us. I, another thing I tell my students is we didn't need a double blind randomized placebo controlled trial to tell, to tell us that brushing your teeth reduces the risk of getting cavities. We just knew that if your breath stinks and you brush your teeth, your breath doesn't stink anymore. Right. And then we started to realize, oh, wait, we can actually have research on this. And then we started to figure that out. So I'm not going to wait for the double blind randomized placebo control trial, although there are many on acupuncture, actually tons on acupuncture, um, that we need it to validate any type of approach that we're going to be needing. And we're, we're catching on to that a lot now, even with conventional medical approaches like, you know, sleep reduces the risk or sleep deprivation increases the risk of dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Or you know, I remember this is actually relatively recent. When I was in school in my undergrad, many of my professors would tell me, it doesn't matter what time you eat. That's a whole thing about a myth of eating before bed. It's bad for you. It causes you to gain weight or it impacts your, your health. That's all nonsense. Well, we realize that that's actually true. And we know, and we have aura rings and we have whoops and Apple watches and all these other things that tell us if you eat before bed, you see what happens to your heart rate and happens to your sleep quality. And that has an impact on other parts of your life and your lifespan and your health span. So not waiting 
you know, 15 to 20 years for somebody to tell me something that I already know as a clinician uh, and with actual human beings. Mm, that's it. Uh, and and so in terms of then thinking about our blood sugar and um, self-assessing on the food front, I feel like I just want to get a little bit more uh, for people to feel like, oh, okay, so I'm going to look at my day and, you know, so it's not carbs are bad and it's not, oh, I did something so I can binge. Like that's not what I'm saying here. I'm just saying about like modulating based on activity. Would that be fair? And then what does that, what what questions should people be asking themselves? I think that's absolutely fair. If you are a person who's sitting around all day and not moving very much, and you think that your calorie requirements are equal to that of another individual who might be moving more, and that's not, that's not, that's just doesn't make sense physiologically, right? From a physics perspective, it just does not make sense. So I have people just evaluate. Um, it's, it's, it's not, so, and it really depends on where you are and, and what triggers are. And obviously I do realize that some people are more sensitive to scales or measurements, but there's ways that we can do this and saying, look, I'm doing this. And things are not changing, whether my shirt isn't fitting me or my belt isn't fitting or my weight is going up on the scale, making a change and then assessing how you are a week after really allows you to identify if you're moving in the right direction or not. So it doesn't even be a scale. You can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I see more body definition than I did a week ago because I cut out alcohol this week, right? And that's just a good enough indication to say, well, I subtracted my calorie intake or I subtracted three drinks from my from my meals this week. That's a good, depending on how, how you pour, that's an easy 500 to 700 calories. And you see that at the end of the week, things get better, then you move in the right direction. So you have to recalibrate based on what the body is kind of showing you. But I also think people should get some guidance from professionals who really understand the body well. Um, but it really depends on your activity, your lifestyle. Uh, you know, my father-in-law, he works construction, 73 years old, and I see what he eats. And I'm like, this guy's literally lifting rocks all day at 70 years old. And it's very different than somebody who's sitting on a couch watching TV all day, two different ages, two different lifestyles, but one might require more or less than another. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then in terms of um, people who are, I'm just thinking of the HPA axis people who often just actually need more carbohydrate. They don't have energy yet. Like we don't want to make them think they have to significantly reduce carbs just because they're not particularly active right now, because it actually is going to help them set up being able to be more active, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I would even say uh, yes, and it also allows their body to not feel like they're in a stress state. But for some individuals, going low carb is stressful. Not something that you could just do overnight. Well, I guess you do do overnight, but it's not something that you would expect results overnight. It does take time for the body to adapt to that type of different type of, of caloric restriction or food. So what I usually, if you are a person... Uh, people who typically start fasting notice this the most, even if it's time-restricted feeding, even if they go to like a 16-8, they 
and they're trying to accommodate this new lifestyle and they get really cranky, it takes time for your body to adjust. Your circadian rhythm is used to a certain cycle. And that's the same thing with, uh, with carbohydrates is figuring out how much is too much to restrict, but how much is too much what your body needs. And many times, again, I mentioned it earlier, if a woman is uh, going through her menstrual cycle, if she's going through her um, seconds, uh, if she's going through her um, parent, yes, the luteal phase, but also if you're going through menopause, that's another stressor on the body. And these are things that we just really need to pay attention to. And um, it's kind of the opposite. If you have this uh, runner's effect where people are calorically restricted and they lose their their menstrual cycle or their menstrual cycle is absent, the same thing can happen for somebody on the other side of the spectrum where uh, they're going through that phase where they should be losing it, but now they're adding another stressor to the body. So many different variables. I, I really wish I could outline each and every individual mm. one, but it's something to consider. It is. And I think if you just check in on how you're feeling, like start to really build a solid feedback loop for yourself. What conversation is my body having with me, both visually and in terms of sensations? Uh, you can really start to understand on a deeper level what is intrinsically good for you versus that superficial level of, oh, I feel like a donut, um, you know, because no, that's never good for you. But like below that, you can actually start to have a conversation with, oh, I actually need to have some whole wheat toast sourdough with my eggs this morning because I just feel like that actually gives me the energy to then do stuff in the morning. Um, whereas if I, or, or gluten-free or whatever, but um, I think once you move past the what we know for sure is bad, and then we get some solid tests from the doc and, or we, you know, start to do our fingerprint more regularly and we start to then think about how we're feeling and how we're looking and what's changing. You start to get clever about what's actually good for you, right? Absolutely. And I think people with the way I usually tell some of my, all of my patients is um, if it's part of a meal, then it makes more sense. But if you're going back for an additional serving or you're just deciding to snack on it, odds are it's probably not what your body wants or needs. So you are constantly feeling like you need carbohydrates or need bread or need uh, a snack or um, anything that feels like it's a, a need, then you should really consider like, is this actually a need or is it a want? Because there's a difference between a craving and an actual sustenance of food. So usually what I would say is, sure, you can have an extra piece of bread, but are you as, are you hungry enough to also have another piece of chicken or another piece of fish or anything like that? And if the answer is no, then you probably you not don't hungry. need the bread. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. That's, you, you can, you can gauge whether you're actually hungry or not through that. Mm. And I have one last question for you, Ralph. It's a question I've brought in uh, recently, and it is thinking about leading a low-tox life. We've got food, body, home, mind, planet. There's so many different factors to doing better, right? And I am on a bit of crusade to just let everybody know that no one is perfect, not even our favourite health professionals on the internet. And we all draw different lines. You know, Carrie last week just talked about her uh, nails. She's never parting with her synthetic nails. And I'm like, me, I would never get synthetic nails. But then I have other things. And so I'd love to know what your absolute non-negotiables are 
and what you're, yeah, I'm good to go with the flow on that sometimes. Oh boy. My non-negotiables that are not good things, right? That are no, that are, that are good things. Like what are we absolutely always stringently stick? Like it's just part of our must do's. And then what's part of our don't care from time to time. Boy, I really, I wish you prepared for me for this one. But I'm actually, so this is one thing is, is one of my things that I don't care from time to time would probably be a, an actual like sugar, sugary junk food, right? So um, if I'm on vacation, so for example, we go to Italy, I'm not holding back on gelato. I'm sorry. It's just, I'm just going to have it. <laughs> you don't um, need to apologize, Ralph. That's the whole point of this exercise is just everybody quitting the judgment, thinking that anyone's perfect, feeling secretly ashamed. Um, you know, like it's just, it's not healthy. We talked about how important mental health is. And I think this is my way of just a little gift for the world of going, ah, okay, well, that's there from time to time thing. And that's okay. I don't have to feel guilty about that. And and I also do that with um, alcohol. So I don't drink for, for multiple reasons. Um, or I, I'm not a daily or frequent drinker, but I will drink when I'm with family member or uh, it's a cultural event. So because I'm Italian, it's a big part of my culture. You tell an Italian household that you don't eat pasta or drink wine, you might as well not even be Italian. Right? So uh, that's one of the things that I would just say, look, I if I'm going to be with my uncles or my father-in-law or somebody and they're offering me homemade wine, I'm going to take it and I'm going to enjoy that. I do realize um, after the passing of my father that there's just things in your life that you don't want to take advantage of or you don't want to take for granted and you want to take advantage of them when you actually have them. So uh, the same thing right now, my mom, she makes incredible pasta. She makes incredible gnocchi, which are- Oh, that's my favorite. Yeah, so good. Handmade, the salt, like like you eat them and you feel like you're walking on a like a, a cloud- <laughs> Yeah. Little pillows of goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So those are things I'm just like, you know what, I'm just going to have that. But on a daily basis, what I kind of think too, as a consistent aspect of my life is um, being strict with actually recognizing when I'm hungry or when I'm not and being mindful. So, um, and that's not even just with hunger, but being mindful of how I'm feeling. Am I actually upset or am I just overreacting? Is this a trigger for me? Should I be reacting this way? And that allows you to be present with where you are and allow you to be present with your body and also around other people uh, because you don't want to be reactive. You want to be considerate and thoughtful. And that's one thing that I just, that's kind of a non-negotiable. I have to go through my day and have that reflection. It varies per day. It could be meditation. It could be a walk. Uh, in the summer now, I get to sit outside and for 15 minutes, get some sun and think about myself and my family and my wife and all these different things. And that's something that I just can't let go of because the mind is probably 10 times more important than we think. And without that, we're not really functional human beings. Yeah. Oh, great answer. Thank you so much, Ralph. Awesome to have you back on the show. Thanks for helping us through the minefield of blood sugar. I feel like we, we, um, we clarified a few points there and uh, yeah, I wish you a beautiful evening and uh, thank you once again. Thank you. 
And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.